Amen. If you have Bibles, please turn to, scroll to, flip to, press John chapter 17. Book of John chapter 17. John, it's in the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. Praise God. Today, we've had the privilege at our baby and child dedication services to dedicate 24 children to God. If you didn't have a chance to dedicate your child, maybe for circumstances beyond your control, we'd love to help you with that down the road. And here's believing that there will be a time for that, which we look forward to. But praise God, the fact that we can have these children being dedicated to God today with parents wanting to do that for their kids, it just shows that there are many families here at Thrive that see their little ones as gifts from God and that they want to lead them to Jesus. Now, with two children of my own, I can say from a parent's perspective, that I've got that same heart. Pastor Shar, we've got that same heart. We want to lead our kids to Jesus. But if I had to be really honest with you all, I have a confession to make, which is that as much as I want to lead my children to Jesus, very often what I find is that it's my children who are leading me to Jesus. Sometimes in ways that I don't even expect, sometimes in ways that they don't even intend. Let me give you an example of just the latest time that you know, one of my kids led me to Jesus. I've got a, a son who's four years old. His name is Caleb. And earlier this week, I was in the bathroom. I was brushing my teeth. And then Caleb walks in. I see him through the mirror as I'm brushing my teeth. And Caleb says something to me that kind of talk, took me off guard. He's, as I'm brushing my teeth, he says to me, Daddy, I want to look like you. And I was like, oh. Okay, that, that's nice. And I turned around. I said, well, why do you want to look like me, Caleb? And he said, Daddy, I want to look like you because you're pretty. <laughs> Notice he didn't say good looking. He didn't say handsome. He didn't say masculine. He said pretty. And I was like, well, yeah, thank you. But you know, mommy's the pretty one. And then Caleb, do you know how he responded? He said, yeah, mommy's really pretty, but I want to look like you. And that funny little exchange between my four-year-old son and me led me to this thought. And I haven't shared it with Caleb, but I'll share it with all of you, just between you and me. Is that okay? Let me share you with this thought. Is that I'm not sure how much you gain by looking like me, but I can say we all have a lot to gain by looking more like Jesus. And in fact, in this series called Find Your Life Again, we're talking about how do you pick up the pieces of your life when you feel like things are falling apart? What do you do when you've lost your joy? What do you do when you've lost your sense of direction? What do you do when you don't really know who you are anymore? You've lost a sense of your identity. What do you do when you've lost hope about the future? What, what happens when something big happens in your life and you've lost your faith? How do you find your life again? And see, in this series, we're saying that the biggest key to finding your joy, your purpose, your hope, your identity, your direction, your life again is by experiencing Jesus. It's not your hard work alone. It's not just good luck, but it's experiencing the one whom the Bible calls the life. Jesus is describing the Bible over and over as the life. And if what the Bible says is true, what that means is if you want to experience life, if you want to find your life again, then you need to experience Jesus. Now, let me tell you something about experiencing Jesus. It's a little secret. Is that experiencing Jesus is not just about witnessing a miracle in your circumstances. Experiencing Jesus is not just about feeling the presence of God when you come to church. Experiencing Jesus is more than that. See, experiencing Jesus is about looking more like Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? See, when I say look more like Jesus, this is what I mean, is that when the way you see aligns more with the way Jesus sees, 
when the way you think about certain situations aligns with the way that Jesus looks at situations, when the way you feel about certain things aligns more and more with the way that Jesus feels about certain things, when the way you live and make decisions aligns more and more with the way that Jesus makes decisions, guess what? You start to look more like Jesus. And you start to experience Jesus, not in an external way, but in an inside-out kind of way, where you start to look and feel and think and live more like Jesus. And the more you look like Jesus in that way, the more you experience the hope that Jesus has. The more you experience the joy that Jesus brings. The more you experience the peace that Jesus promises. The more that you experience the, the purpose that Jesus gives. And see, it's because when you look like Jesus, the more you're able to find your life again. And see, it's for this reason today that the message I'm here to share with you is called Look like Jesus. Would you turn your number and say, I want to look like Jesus? See, here at Thrive Church, there are five letters that describe the kind of church that we want to be. Speaking of looking, what do we see our church becoming? What is our vision as a church? Well, it's described in five letters, which many of you know very well. Those five letters are A-E-I-O-U. Now, let me give it to you in an order that I usually don't give it to you right now. Are you guys ready? A stands for alive. It means we're here to worship Jesus. I stands for involved. It means we're here to serve Jesus with our talents. O stands for out loud. It means we're here to lead others to Jesus. U stands for united. It means we're here to love the family that God gave us, his church. But there's one more letter. That letter is E is for expectant. It means we're here to grow more like Jesus. Now, in other words, you weren't made you weren't put on this earth just to worship Jesus or just to serve Jesus or to just to lead others to Jesus or just to love the family he gave you called his church. You were made to grow more like Jesus. You were made to look more like Jesus. And in fact, God is in the business of taking people who are far from him and transforming them from the inside out so that more and more they conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why God made you. That's why Thrive Church exists, it's because you and I were made to look more like Jesus. Now, here's the question. How do you look more like Jesus? Let me tell you a little secret today that you can write down. It's really simple. The more you look at Jesus, the more you'll look like Jesus. See, in other words, the more you focus on someone, whether it's someone that you really admire or someone that you really dislike, the more you focus on, the more you think about them, the more time you spend with them, guess what happens? You somehow get impacted in ways you, not, you don't even know when it comes to them. You become in some ways more and more like them because the more you look at them, the more you become like them. The same goes for Jesus. Is that the more you look at Jesus, the more you'll look like Jesus. It's no wonder why in the New Testament, there's a book called Hebrews that says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep on looking at Jesus because the more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. Are you with me? If you believe that, say amen. You see, in this series called Find Your Life Again, we're taking a good look at Jesus 
who Jesus is. And we're doing so through one of the most powerful, most famous, most beloved books ever written. It's called the Gospel of John. And it's written by one of Jesus' earliest and closest disciples. His name is John. And we're doing this not just on Sundays here at Thrive Church on site and online, but we're also doing so every day. If you want to get in on that, go to mythrive.info, subscribe for Pastor JB's game time sharing, and we get to walk through the Bible together that way. But see, today we're into John chapter 17. And we're just going to look at one verse from John chapter 17 today. It's just verse 1. Would you help me read God's word together right now? 1, 2, 3, it says, after Jesus said this. Stop right there. After Jesus said this. Said what? Said this. What's this? Let me tell you what this is. This is everything that Jesus has just said in the previous four chapters of John chapter 17. It's all that Jesus said in John chapter 13. All that Jesus said in John chapter 14. John chapter 15, John chapter 16. It's all that Jesus said in these four chapters. Now, before we kind of unpack and look at what he said, let me ask you this question. Do you remember the first movie you ever saw in the theaters? Do you guys remember? You think back, way back when you were a kid or maybe when you were a teenager, you went to the theater and you saw the first movie in the theaters you ever saw. Can I tell you, one of the first movies I ever saw in the theaters as a teenager, it was the movie My Life, starring Michael Keaton, and, Diane, and, and, and Nicole Kidman. And see, it's a story of a dad who's been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, and he doesn't have much time left to live. And because he knows he can't spend that much more time on the earth, he decides to do something for his son who is just being born. He decides he's going to shoot a series of videos about himself to show his son when he's no longer around. And so in one video, he's teaching his son how to shave. He's like, son, this is how you shave. You know, in another video, he's teaching his son how to shoot a basketball. He's like, okay, put your hand right here and put your other hand right here. You know, in another one, he's teaching his son how to shake someone's hand. This is how you shake a person's hand. You know, in another one, he's saying, you know, go, you know, make sure all the time that you be nice to your mom. You know, in another one, in one awkward video, he's talking about, you know, how do you talk to girls and all that stuff. And all these different things that a, that a dad would want to teach their son in person, he's deciding because my time is short and I don't know how much longer I have, I'm going to teach him now through these videos. And see, what was this dad doing? This dad is teaching his son how to navigate through life at a time when his dad is no longer going to be around. And for me, it's a reminder that if you want to be a great parent, let me tell you what a great parent does. See, being a great parent is not just about making the most of the time that you have when you're present with your kids, but even more, being a great parent is about preparing your kids for those times when you will be absent. It's about setting them up for success in those times when you can't be there with them. And a lot of us, we understand that, even with young kids, is that, you know, when they go to preschool or kindergarten, we'll give them a little lunchbox and we'll say, okay, don't eat this now. But when the teacher says it's okay, when it's snack time or lunchtime, that's when you can open, okay? Okay. It's because we can't be there to enforce it and to help them with it. Or, you know, later on when they're a little bit older, they may be going on a field trip. And they're like, okay, stick with your teachers, stay away from strangers. It's because you're teaching them to help handle themselves when you can't be there to be there to protect them. You know, another one is, you know, when down, down the road, maybe they're a little bit older, you might set up an RESP to help finance their education. You know, you might help them buy their own house one day. You might set up a will and say, I'm going to set aside certain assets for the provision of my kids. What are you doing? These are all different ways that parents will prepare their children for times when they won't be around. Now, why do I mention all of this? It's because that is exactly what Jesus is doing in John chapter 13 to 17. This is the night before Jesus' death. 
and he knows it. He knows that in just a matter of hours, he is going to die. And all this time, he's been with his disciples for all these years. And all this time, he's saying that, you know what? You know, there's going to be a day when I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be abandoned and I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be charged for stuff that I didn't do. I'm going to be sentenced to death. And then finally, I'm going to do the very thing that I came to do, which is to die on the cross for the sins of every person who's ever lived. I'm going to die there. That's why I came. And for the longest time, he would say, you know what? My time has not yet come. You know, don't involve me. My time has not yet come. But now the hour has come. And here, Jesus, knowing that he's just got a few more hours with his disciples, he's trying to prepare them for the time when he's no longer going to be around. And so he has what is famously now known as the Last Supper. And you know, John, he gives us some interesting, unique details about what it was like to be firsthand in that meal. Is that Jesus at that meal, he does something that he's never done before that shocks everybody. He, he gets down, he, he takes off his outer clothing, and he starts to wash the feet of his disciples. Everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, this is what like, a slave does. What are you doing that, doing that? And then and he goes off, he, he puts on his clothes again, and then possibly with his hands still damp from washing his disciples' feet, he now offers his disciples some fun final words of wisdom at this last supper. And that's what we find in John chapter 13 to 16. These are Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his death. Now, none of us can compare to Jesus. We're not ever close to Jesus, but to a very limited extent. I think when you read and hear the things that Jesus says in John 13 to 16, I think there's a part of you that can relate. If you knew that you were speaking to your kids for the very last time, you might feel the same way. You might say very similar things. This is what Jesus says, just a little, like a little taste of it. You know, you know, he says, for example, he starts to comfort his, his kids, comforts his disciples. He says, Yo, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. You know, so he's comforting them. He also affirms his love for them. He says, you know, greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then in addition to affirming his love for them, he says, you know what? Love one another. You know, would you take good care of one another? As I have loved you, would you love one another? Because by all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you will just love one another. So take good care of each other. You know, he also does one more thing. He hints toward his resurrection. Because Jesus, he wouldn't just predict his death, but he'd predict beyond that. He'd say, one day I'm going to rise. And he'd say it again. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world's not going to see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And so he's pointing this hope of resurrection. He's talking about eternity and heaven. He's like, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go there first to prepare a place for you. And when the disciples ask, well, how are you going to get to heaven? We don't know the way. Then he says, you know what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so he's preparing his disciples, his kids, for a time when he's not going to be around. He prepares them for the hostility that they're going to face as his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So get ready. And then he teaches the, the, the disciples about the Holy Spirit and saying, you know, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because they neither know him or see him, but you know him because he's with you and will be in you. And see, finally, at the end of all this, he says one more thing. He says, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
See, these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before his death. And what is Jesus doing? He's preparing his disciples for a time when he will no longer be around. He's teaching them to navigate life without him. Now, here's the thing. After Jesus says all these things, after teaching all of this stuff, he does one more thing. He's going to pray with his disciples. Look at John 17, verse 1. It says this. Read it with me. It says, after Jesus said this, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. Parents, if you want to lead your kids to Jesus, one of the most powerful things you can possibly do with your kids is not just to teach them the Bible. It's to pray with them. You know, here are five ways that prayer is powerful. Number one, prayer is the channel to God's comforting presence. Is that God is a God whose presence, when you get close to it, is actually comforting when he accepts you. And because of Jesus Christ and his bloodshed on the cross, we are forgiven of our sins. We're accepted in God's presence. And when we can access, you know, the presence of God through prayer, that is an incredible gift that you can help your kids to understand and experience. Is that if you want your kids to know the presence of God, God's encouraging, comforting presence, then the best thing you can do is at night, you sit beside them and say, hey, let's pray together. Because what's that? That's open the door to the presence of God in their lives. That's the first way that prayer is powerful. It's a channel to God's comforting presence. Second way that prayer is powerful, it's your weapon against worry. You know, if you're someone who struggles with worry, struggles with anxiety, one of the best weapons that God gives you against your worry, against your fear, against your anxiety is prayer. You know, the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. And the peace of God, which past understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. So parents in this place, if you want your kids to be emotionally healthy and secure, then you, if you want them to be able to stand up against worry, stand up against fear, stand up against anxiety, then you want to teach them to pray because prayer is your weapon against worry. Number three, prayer is the key that unlocks God's power. Let me give you an example. Just by looking at you right now, I'm reminded of this example is that, you know, years and years ago, I would drive by this building right here that we're in on number three road and think to myself, man, it'll be really cool to have a church here one day. It'd be really cool. At the time, we had another venue, and you know, we were kind of in that venue for a while, and, but we thought, you know, we'd ask, and so we asked this venue, called the Pomp Place, hey, have you guys ever had a church here before? Are you guys open having a church here before? Any availability for a church here anytime soon? And they said, no, 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 no. And they were like, okay, and then we asked again, no, 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 no. It was, it, was, it was a lot of no's, a lot of no's. But then, you know, I told the staff about it, you know, but what do you guys think? Like, oh, we think we'd be great to be here one day. We'd love that. And so, you know what? During the past several years, we'd pass by this building, and when I drive, I'd, I'd drive with my left hand, and then with my right hand, I'd just stick out a little hand right here. I'm still facing forward, okay, just in case you think I'm a dangerous driver. I, I, I'm, stick, I'm sticking my hand out, and I say, God, I pray that one day we'd have a church in here. I pray that one day you give us access to this place. And guess what? Just a few months ago, you know, when our then current venue couldn't be used anymore, we called them again and they said, hey, we'd love to have you here. And all of a sudden, the doors are open and now you're here. Praise God. Would you give God some praise in this place together right now? Amen. And you know what? You may be all, you know, it just happened that way. But you know what? I believe this is that there is a power that prayer brings that nothing else can bring. And that with power, with prayer comes power. In fact, we've got a saying here at Thrive, which is much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. It's because prayer is the key that unlocks God's power. Number four, prayer is the glue that unites God's people. 
You know, every Sunday before our services, our team here, you know, after they set up all the stuff and they're practicing their songs, they're setting up the kids' ministry, they're doing all these things online as well, is that what happens is that our team will gather together to pray. And in those times, we'll look to God and say, God, we need you. God, we can't do anything without you. We're desperate for you to move in this service because if you don't move, nothing's gonna happen. If you aren't here, it doesn't matter what we do. If the Lord isn't there to build the house, it's only building in vain. So we need you. And so we look to God together that way. But something really cool happens as we look to God and ask for more of him is that somehow we get closer together. Somehow as a team, we like glue start to stick together. Somehow as a team, we get united. We get on the same page. You know, in my family, you know, whenever we go on a trip, on a vacation, we might be sitting in the car and we're about to leave. We might be on a plane. We're about to take off. One of the things we'll do sometimes is we'll, we'll say a prayer together. You know, if we're, if we're with a lot of people, we might whisper the prayer. If we're in the car, we'll say it loud. And what we'll do is we will just pray because there's something about prayer that brings everyone together. There's something about prayer that unites a team, unites a family, unites a couple like nothing else can. You're going to find that, generally speaking, a team that prays together stays together. It's because prayer is the glue that unites God's people. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Number five, prayer is a window wiper. Prayer is a window wiper that clarifies your life's mission, vision, and priorities. See, when you can't see clearly in front of you, when you need to make some decisions about your future and you're not really sure what to do, prayer is like that window wiper that kind of wipes off that rain of uncertainty that's blocking the way. It allows you to see a little more clearly what's in front of you. And see, more than anyone else, Jesus understood the power of prayer. More than anyone else, Jesus applied and exercised the power of prayer. And see, here at Thrive, we believe that prayer is not a spectator sport. That you're not just meant to watch other people pray. God gave you a spirit by which to relate to him. God gave you a voice by which to speak to him. God gave you ears and a heart by which to hear him. And so you weren't, not, you weren't meant just to watch other people like a spectator pray. You were meant to pray yourself. But, so you weren't never meant to just watch people pray. But that said, that said, let me tell you something. You can actually learn some things about a person by watching how they pray. Do you know that? I'm not saying, you know, later on when we sing and someone's praying, you just stare at them. No, I'm not telling you to do that, but I'm telling you this, is there's some things you can learn about a person just by watching how they pray. For example, those of you who are single in this place and you want to get married, say you're dating someone and you're wondering if that person's really the right partner for you. Let me tell you this. You can learn a whole lot about a person just by asking them one question. Do you know what that question is? That question is this, honey, darling, or just their name, do you want to spend some time praying together? Do you want to spend some time praying together? Ask the question and then sit back and see their response. Because you know what? You can find out quite a lot about a person based on how they pray or how they approach prayer. You can learn something about their heart about their faith, about how they relate to God, if at all. You can learn something about their character, their personality, the environment that they grew up in. For example, are they open to prayer? Do, are they even open to praying? Or do they resist prayer? Oh no, you pray, I don't pray, you pray. 
Right? Or, you know, are they comfortable and familiar with prayer? Or is it a very awkward, foreign, strange, uncomfortable thing? Like, oh, you want me to pray with you? Uh, I'm, I'm a very private person. I'm very spiritual, but I'm very private. So, so, so I just only pray by myself, right? Or, or, you know, what do you say when you pray? Is that, you know, do you talk a lot? Do you talk a little? Are you very formal in your prayer? Like, oh, you want to pray? Okay, let me first wash my hands, change my clothes, put on my head covering, get my prayer book, and I'll see you in a couple days, and we'll meet that way. Or, or like, is it like they're very formal in that they use their very flowery language, and so yous become thous, and it's just, it's just very, very formal. Or they're very natural and casual about prayer. You know, when they talk to God, how do they talk to God? Do they talk to God almost like a server in a restaurant? Okay, give me this, give me that side of this. Thanks very much. In Jesus' name, amen. Or is there a certain amount of reverence and, you know, awe that comes with their praying? You know, do they take time to thank God and worship God for who he is? Or do they just complain about stuff or ask for stuff? See, under what circumstances do they pray? Do they pray when only times are good? Oh, praise God, I got the job. Yeah, praise God, praise God. Or do they only pray when times are bad? Like, and, and they just only run to God when times are tough? Or is it both? Is it never? See, there's a certain amount of stuff you can learn about a person by watching how they pray. Is there a sense of sincerity? and humility in how they pray, or does it almost seem like they're praying for show? See, the answers to these questions will give you some clues into that person, to their heart, their values, their faith, how they relate to God, if at all. Because let me tell you this, anyone can say, I believe in God. Anyone can say, yeah, I'm spiritual. Anyone can go to church. Anyone can go on eHarmony and talk about how spiritual they are. But the fact is this, the fact is it matters how you respond to prayer. And in many ways, it's very telling of who we are. And so if you want to get to know a person, look at how they pray. It's with that in mind that I want to take a look at how Jesus prays. Because in so doing, we're going to learn some things about Jesus. Are you guys ready? Here we go. This prayer we're looking at, John 17, is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have in the Bible. It is sometimes known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. And that's because Jesus, he's stepping into the gap as a representative of God before the people, as a representative of the people before God, and he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for himself. He's even praying for you and me, those who would believe in him in the future. So he's praying for all these things. He's standing in the gap as a priest, and he's praying before God. And see, he, in praying these prayers, you're going to find this. This is one of the richest passages in the Bible that you can possibly find. And so you know what? I would be amiss to try to take all, all of it today. We're just only going to look at one verse today together, but let's look at John 17 verse 1 right now. What does it say? It says, after Jesus said this, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. Would you underline those words if you have it? He lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. What's the traditional way that people think about prayer? Usually, a lot of people, they'll think, bow your heads, close your eyes, Right? And when I went to a Mandarin church in Taiwan, they would say, which is bow your heads, close your eyes, right? And, and so, and see, but look at this. When Jesus prays, notice, is he bowing his head and closing his eyes? No, he's not. He looks up to heaven, eyes wide open, and he prays. Now, I'm not telling you that every time you pray, that needs to be your physical posture as well. You want to look like Jesus? Always pray with your eyes open like this. No, I'm not telling you that. But there's a certain mentality. There's a certain attitude. There's a certain perspective that you need to have in your heart when you pray like this. Is that there's a certain attitude of expectation. There's a certain attitude of awe. Where in spite of whatever else you're going through, when you pray looking up to heaven, eyes open, it suggests that Jesus, he's not looking down on someone he's talking to. He's looking up to someone who's greater than him. 
And that when he's looking, when he's looking up to heaven, he's not, you know, looking down and just focusing on his problems, but he's looking up to the one who is greater than his biggest predicament, which is death in just a couple hours. He would look to God because he's greater. He would look to God because he's greater than his problems. And the same way it's this, is that if you want to look like Jesus, then you want to pray with a similar attitude. Pray with a sense of expectation. Pray with a sense of faith. Pray believing that with God, all things are possible. You look up to heaven and pray. Amen. That's the first way that we can look like Jesus. Another one, look at verse one one more time. It says, after Jesus said this, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, would you underline that word? Father. See, if you're a Jew listening to Jesus pray during that time, you'll be a little shocked that Jesus would address God as Father. Because to most Jews living that time who grew up reading the Old Testament, they would refer to God as Yahweh, the Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth, you know, ruler of the nations, the Holy One, God Almighty. And he's, there, he's big, he's holy, he's huge, he's massive, he's far away. And so he's like, how, do you, how can you speak about God in such an intimate way, like Father? Like, it's like, it's almost like he's so far above us. How can you bring him down to such a close personal level? It's almost like borderline blasphemy, some Jews would even think. But see, yet over and over, you're going to find this. Jesus, whenever he addresses God, he addresses him as father. He would say to crowds that he would teach, he'd say, be merciful because your heavenly father is merciful. He would say, don't worry about tomorrow because your heavenly father already knows your needs. When his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus, he said, the first two words you say are father. It's because Jesus, he desperately wanted us somehow to start relating to God as father. In fact, over 200 times in the gospels, you'll find Jesus referring to God as father. Now, I'm not sure what your relationship with your own earthly dad is like. I'm not sure if your dad is still around. I'm not sure if you've got an estranged relationship or a strained relationship with your dad. I'm not sure if there's been a lot of hurt in the past between you and your dad. Maybe your dad, you know, left a lot longer or a lot earlier than you ever hoped and wasn't there for much of your life. Maybe your dad was physically present, but he was emotionally absent. Maybe your dad was, you know, obviously weak in certain areas. Maybe he was addicted to something. Maybe he had an anger problem. Maybe he was abusive. And see, here's the thing. Sometimes the biggest mistake we make when it comes to the way we look at our Heavenly Father is that we take our relationship with our earthly dad and our view of our earthly dad and we just project it onto God and say, that's exactly how God is. My dad was absent, God is absent. My dad is angry, God is angry. My dad doesn't care, God doesn't care. My dad is detached, my God, and God is also detached. And we just kind of do this one-to-one -one projection. But I'm here to tell you today, if you're, in the, if you're in that place where you sometimes do that, I'm telling you this, that is not God. Your heavenly father is not like that. Your earthly father is far from perfect, but your heavenly father is absolutely perfect. There is no one loving like your heavenly father is loving. There is no one good like your heavenly father is good. There is no one compassionate like your, your, like, like your heavenly father is compassionate. There's no one faithful like your heavenly father is faithful. And see, how do I know these things? It's because Jesus came to reveal what your heavenly father is like is that he came to die on the cross for our sins, to pay our debt. But he also, as a corollary of that mission, he came to reveal who the Father is. In fact, he tells his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what your heavenly Father is like? You're looking at him. Look at me. And see, to show us that you have a Father unlike any other, 
when we were separated from God because of our sin, when each of us had turned to our own way, every one of us running away from home, running away from heaven, running away from God, running away from our heavenly father, when each of us decided to sin and do our own thing and that sin separated us from God such that we couldn't get back to God again, your heavenly father loved you so much that he said, I don't wanna be apart from you. I don't wanna be distant from you. I don't wanna be separate from you forever. And so he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live the life that none of us could live the life that met all of God's requirements. And then Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be brought back to God, so that we could have forgiveness for sin, so that we could be reconciled to the Father that we had separated ourselves from to show that God's love for you is not based on your merit, not based on your performance, not based on how good you think you are, not dependent on your mood, but that God's love for you is an unconditional, unchanging, unlimited love. Oh, come on, give God some praise. Let's play together right now. Amen. And to show you that it's not just a joke, to show you that Jesus wasn't just lying or crazy when he tried to show you who who your heavenly father is like, to show that all that you can count on, not only did Jesus die, but he rose again from the grave to show that death and sin have no hold over him, that when you place your trust in Jesus, it is a living hope. It is a sure hope. It's a hope that's stronger than the grave and stronger than death. And that's why I'll tell you this, is that you know if God had an iPhone, your picture would be his interface. His background. If God had a tattoo, your birthday is probably his tattoo. You know, if, if God, you know, was, you know, someone that you want to imagine, he's like, he's the God, he's the father who's always thinking about you. When you do something great, no one is prouder of you than your heavenly father is. You know, when you're hurting, no one is hurting for you like your heavenly father is. That is your heavenly father. Maybe your heavenly father, maybe your earthly father was absent. Your heavenly father will never leave you or forsake you. You know, maybe your, heavenly, your earthly father was often angry. Your heavenly father is not like that. In fact, the Bible says his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Maybe your earthly father was addicted. Your heavenly father is always in control. Your, maybe your earthly father was abusive. No one is good like your heavenly father is good. And see, what's the lesson in all of this? Is that if you want to look like Jesus, if you want to experience more of Jesus in your life, relate to God as your heavenly father. See, in high school, I was once in this youth group. I was a brand new Christian. And there was a youth leader, a youth group leader who was praying for me. And as he's praying for me, in the middle of the prayer, he stops and he says this to me. He says, JB, I just get the sense that over this next little while that God wants to reveal himself to you as your father. He wants to, you to know him like a father loves a son, like a son loves a father. And guess what? When he said that, I was like, uh, huh? I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. But over time, I started to understand that the more you get to know your heavenly father, the more you relate to God as a loving, faithful, awesome father, that the more it gives you confidence, the more it helps your security, the more it gives you a healthier outlook on life, such that your expectations of yourself, your expectations of others start to become healthier and more realistic. You're not looking for people to be God in your life because you have a heavenly father who's in your life. You worry less because you know there's one who's got your back and who's in control. And you know that whatever it is that you're facing, there's someone greater who's there to help you overcome. His name is your heavenly father. And see, just as Jesus related to God as father, you have a heavenly father that you were made to relate to. And when you do that, when you start to relate to God as father, guess what happens? You start to find your hope again. 
you start to find your security again. You start to find your direction again. You start to find your life again. John chapter 17, verse one says this, read it with me. What does it say? It says, after Jesus said this, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See, who's the son here? It's Jesus. Jesus, the son of God. Now, as much as Jesus encourages us to relate to God as father, the fact is this, Jesus as the son of God is very different from us as children of God. See, you and I, we are children of God by faith in Jesus, but we're only human. Jesus, he is the son of God because by nature, he's not just human, he's also God. And so now here in verse one, we've got God the son talking to God the Father. And what does the Son say? He says, glorify your Son. Now, have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? Dear God, I just have one request. Glorify me. Have you ever played that prayer before? God, give me glory. God, glorify me. And see, it might sound like an odd thing to pray, but you gotta understand this. When Jesus says, glorify your Son, He's not praying, God, Father, make me rich, make me powerful, make me famous, make me popular. He's not saying that. Rather, in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus speaks of his own glorification, Jesus is referring to something very different. Whenever Jesus speaks of his glorification, you know what he's referring to? He's referring to going through death going through burial, going through resurrection, and ascending to heaven, all in accordance with the Father's will in obedience to the Father's command. That's glorification for Jesus. And so when Jesus prays, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, you know what he's praying? He's basically saying this, Father, have your way in my life. Not my will, but yours be done. I surrender my life to you. Let me bring you glory by doing what you want. Let me bring you glory by doing what you command me to do. Let me bring you glory by surrendering my will and going for your will. And see, don't assume for a moment that is easy for Jesus to do. Oh, he's Jesus. It's easy to know. If, and it would cost him everything. In fact, when you read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you're going to find that Jesus on the eve of his death, he's praying and he is in deep stress, fear, and shock. So much so that even as he's praying, the Bible says that he's, he's sweating out blood. And, and some people even look at that and go, wow, like that's really a different picture from John 17. John 17, Jesus is so serene and so peaceful. Like what, what, why the contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. What's going on? These are very likely two different moments on the same night. Jesus, he's at the Last Supper. He's teaching his disciples that he prays with his disciples, this powerful prayer, his high priestly prayer. But then after he's done all that, he crosses the Kidron Valley. He goes out into the darkness, into the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. He goes there and there alone with his father, he starts to pour out his heart. He starts to pour out his fears. He starts to pour out his doubts. He starts to pour out all of his anxieties and stress. He starts to pour it all out before God and say, God, if it's possible, take this from me but not my will, let yours be done. And see, in each case, whether it's before his disciples in the great priestly prayer, or it's by himself in the garden of Gethsemane, each time Jesus lays down his will and surrenders to his father's will. And see, 
So when he prays, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, it's not a selfish prayer. It's not a self-centered prayer. It's not a self-promoting kind of prayer, but it's the most selfless prayer that Jesus could possibly pray. He's humbling himself before the Father. He's submitting to the Father's will. He's obeying the Father's command, and he's giving the Father maximum glory through his life because he's joining once again in the mission of his Father. Speaking of a Father's mission, let me tell you something that happened this morning. Sometimes in the Lim home, Sunday mornings can be a little hectic. We've got two young kids, got messages to prepare, service to get ready for. And I got to tell you this, is uh, this morning, I'm trying to get ready and uh, I can't find my phone. I'm like, oh man, dude, where's my phone? I can't find my phone. And I'm looking around all over, where's my phone? I even you know, say, okay, everyone be quiet, everyone be quiet. And I take another phone, I call my phone. I'm like, okay, anyone hear anything? Anyone hear anything? For 10 minutes, I'm walking around with, and you know what, after all, I just could And so I looked everywhere. My son, my older son, Bradley, he's on the couch. He's on his computer, on, my mom, or on, on, on his mom's computer. And he's working busy on some other stuff. But you know what he does? Kind of touched me. It's really simple, but it kind of touched me. He turned off the computer. And he said, let me help you find it. And so he starts going around the house. He goes everywhere he can find, and he looks for that phone, looking for that lost phone. And guess what? what is, and I was kind of touched just seeing him do it because he was, what was he doing? He's laying aside his agenda to serve his dad's agenda. He's laying aside his interests so that he could help his father on the mission that he's on. And that's what Jesus did. He laid aside his agenda to serve his father's agenda. And there's a lesson here with, for that, that I learned from all of that, is that like Jesus, if you want to look like Jesus, realize that your life is not your own. It belongs to God. It's for God's glory. See, you don't exist for your own comfort, your own happiness, your own fame, your own name. You exist for the glory of God. And one day, just like Jesus, you're going to give an account to God for how you live this life. Let me tell you, if you want glory, what real glory is. Real glory is not living for yourself, living for your comfort, living for your convenience, living so you can be happy, living like just for yourself. Real glory is living out God's purpose for your life. And see, that sounds great. That sounds so cool. That sounds so ideal. That sounds so spiritual. Oh, I'm going to live for God's glory. But what does that look like practically? See, how do you know if you're really living for God's glory? Let me end today by sharing with you a few questions that you can ask yourself if you're really living for God's glory. Are you guys ready? I encourage you to take a good, sober look at yourself. Just as I was brushing my teeth in the mirror, maybe take a look in the mirror right now and ask yourself how you would answer some of these questions today. And we're going to go through them rather quickly. If you find that you need more time to meditate on these, you can take a picture of them. But here we go. Here's some seven questions to ask yourself about if you're really living for God's glory. Number one, when I make decisions about my life, about how I use my time, is the driving force of my decision-making my own happiness, my own comfort, my own convenience? Or is the driving force of my decision-making what God is calling me to do? In other words, when I'm deciding on stuff, am I focused on comfort and convenience or am I focused on calling? That's the first one. Second one, am I focused on the short term only or am I pursuing God's long-term vision for my life? Is that God, he's writing a long-term story for your life. I don't believe you were made to be just a flash in the pan, but God has a long-term story about long-term glory he wants to write with your life. But sometimes we, when we live for ourselves, we know because we're just all focused on just how I feel right now, how I'm feeling, how, you know, how, 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 how comfortable is it right now? I'm focused on the short-term. So which one are we focused on, short-term or long-term? Number three, am I doing what's just good for me 
what's convenient for me, what you know, gives me happiness, or am I doing what's best for the team that God has placed me on? That's number three. Number four, in what ways am I trying to make Jesus known in my home, in my workplace, in my school, in my city? Am I trying at all? Is that even on the radar when I go to work in the morning? Is that even on the radar when I pass by my school? Is that even on the radar when I go home? Number five, if someone else were to look at the way I use my time, my talents, and my wallet, what would they say is the number one thing I'm living for? Number six, am I putting God first in my relationships, in my finances, in my business? Am I following God's commands when it comes to these areas? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing? Finally, number seven, am I trying to honor God in the little things? By little things, they might not be little things, but sometimes we think they're little things. It's stuff like how I speak to the people in my house, how I use my words. It's about, you know, when you're cut off in traffic, how you respond. It's about, you know, when I come to church and I sit in my seat and I stand with everyone else and how locked in am I on focus and focused on giving God worship or am I just kind of thinking about lunch? It's those little things. It's those little ways that we are either living for God's glory or living for ourselves. And see, maybe you're here and you're tempted to do something that you know deep down is not God's best for you. It's not his calling. It's more your convenience. It's not long-term. It's more short-term. It's not really about him. It's really more about you. If that's you today, can I tell you, you've got a choice to make today. Live for God's glory. You know, if you want to look more like Jesus, you want to see your life not as your own, but belong to God and belong for his glory. And that means what we have to, sometimes have to do is make that uncomfortable choice to lay down our preference, lay down our agenda, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's scary, but trusting in this ironic truth that when you surrender your life to God and you use it for his purposes, you will eventually find your life again, except in a much greater form than anything you could have done if you just lived for yourself. Today we're talking about looking like Jesus. As we close today, I'm going to invite everyone to stand because I believe you're here for a transformation, not just information. And so I think with that in mind, I just want to encourage you to do this with me. Is uh, Today we've learned from verse 1 of Jesus' high priestly prayer. There are three things that we want to do if we want to look more like Jesus and experience more of Jesus in our lives. Number one, like Jesus, pray with faith and expectant heart. Maybe when you pray, you're often just kind of bemoaning your problems and God, woe is me, and throwing a pity party. And I get it. You know, sometimes we just have to go to God with our stuff and he's okay with that. But you want to do one more thing. Pray with faith. Pray with expectation. Pray with an expectant heart. Number two, like Jesus, see God as your loving and faithful father. He's not just your savior. He's not just your friend. He's not just your Lord. He's not just your master. He's your loving and faithful father. Number three, like Jesus, realize that your life is not your own, that you exist for God's glory. So live for God's glory. There's one more way that you and I can look more like Jesus and experience more of him. And that is receive what Jesus did for you on the cross. The Bible says that God is holy. He is holy, 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 such that no sin, nothing and no one with sin can stand in the presence of a holy God. We would die just in an instant if we were ever exposed to the holy presence of God. 
But something happens when we receive what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Jesus, he stretched out his arms, he shed his blood. And the Bible says that when you place your trust in what Jesus Christ has done, his blood, his precious, righteous blood is what covers us now. With the shedding, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. When we trust in Jesus, his blood covers us. So that when, Jesus, when, the, when, the, when the Father looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees whatever way you think you failed. What you got, when Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees his son on you. He sees the blood of his son on you. And he says, that looks like Jesus. He looks like Jesus. She looks like Jesus. I accept him. I welcome him. I receive her, I include her, I forgive her, I forgive him. That's the forgiveness of God that Jesus made possible on the cross. And if you're here and you've never received that, if you've heard about these things, but you've never opened your heart to receive it, then the best thing you can do today to look more like Jesus and experience more of Jesus is to receive what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, you can look up if you want, but I just encourage you, just, just respecting the privacy of people who are praying today. If you realize that you need God's forgiveness for sin, if you realize that you without Jesus are far from God and you need Jesus to forgive your sins, then I want to encourage you to respond to God right now. What you can do is just lift up a hand to God right now and let, the, the, let your hand, you know, let the height of your hands just reflect your honesty, your humility, your sincerity. And this is just a simple way to say, Jesus, I need you. If that's you, want to lift your hand to God right now. Those of you on site, you know, as you're lifting up your hand, there's one of our ushers will come to you with a little prayer card that we're going to pray in just a minute with you. If you're on site, that's what we do. If you're online, you can you know, press the button that's in your chat room or scan the QR code that's on your screen. It's gonna take you the same prayer that we're gonna pray together in just a minute. Anyone who wants forgiveness, anyone who wants Jesus, anyone who wants to have Jesus, you know, you make them a new person inside out because of his blood shed on the cross for us. Why don't you click that link, scan that QR code, and why don't you pray this prayer with me? In fact, let's all pray this prayer in support of those praying for the first time. Just say this with you right now. Say, dear Jesus, Thank you that because you love me, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and I ask you, please forgive me of all my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my trust not in what I do, but in what you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Did you pray that prayer? Did you mean that prayer? If you did, then the Bible says that you are forgiven of your sins, that you're a child of God, you're a citizen of heaven. You have a relationship with God, not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if that's you, then a huge congratulations to you. And we've got some gifts we want to give to you. In fact, if you're online, you can go to the bottom of that page that you prayed that prayer on. Some gifts we want to love to give to you. Uh, if you're here on site, you prayed that prayer, you can take that card that you prayed that prayer on, or maybe you didn't have that card, but you prayed that prayer, just go to the Welcome Center. We'd love to give you that gift. On top of that, we encourage you to keep coming to church because every baby, every child needs a family to grow up, and we'd love to be your spiritual family here at Thrive. We also encourage you to get baptized. Everyone say baptism. Baptism is just our way, simple way of saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I receive what you did on the cross for me, and I thank you for rising again. That's all baptism is. If you want to do that, go to mythrob.info, press the baptism button for more information on that. We'd love to help you out with that. Praise God. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thrive Church. My name is Kathy, and it's so great to be here with you guys today. Before I let you guys go, I have a few announcements for you. 
If it's your first time here, we would love to get to know you better. So please text NEW to 604-285-5770 or visit mythar.info and we'll mail you your very own Thrive Stainless Steel water bottle. If you're on-site at Leap on Place, you can pick one up at the Welcome Center by the exit door after service. We are going to celebrate Father's Day at Leap on Place on Sunday, June 19th at 9.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. We want to love on all our dads here at Thrive Church, so please invite your family. We can't wait to see you all there. For all the parents here at Thrive, if you have any children ages 3 to 9, we're hosting our very first Thrive Kids VBS summer camp called Make Wave from August 2nd to August 5th. Join us for an exciting week of games, activities, and crafts. Your kids will also learn how they can make a positive impact and share God's love with the people around them. For more information or to sign up, please visit info. That's it for this week. I hope you all have a great day. Don't forget to give your tithes and offerings online at info. Have an amazing Sunday afternoon, and I'll see you all next week online or on-site at Leap on Place. Bye!